Hello everyone, this is Elizabeth Emery coming to you again from our annual late summer break. This week while on break, in place of the regular episode, I am happy to share another female athlete podcast, Madam Athlete. Madam Athlete is a career-focused podcast about women working in sports and athletics, created and hosted by sports medicine physician Dr. Giselle Arney. Each week on the podcast, Giselle interviews women working in sports about their career and takes a deep dive into career development topics like building your confidence and graceful self-promotion. What I love about Madam Athlete Podcast is that because the conversations are centered around sports and career, the connection between sports and the rest of the life becomes really obvious. Her guests often share about how their time as athletes were a crucial foundation to their success outside of sports. Find the episodes at madamathlete.com and your favorite podcast player. Madam Athlete is on Twitter and Facebook at Madam Athlete and on Instagram at The Madam Athlete. Before I hand over the show to Giselle, I want to remind everyone to take advantage of the discount code from our new sponsor, The Feed. With the code FORWARD15, you will get 15% off pretty much everything in your order. The Feed is a one-stop shop for your sports nutrition needs, offering the brands you know and love. I've gotten products from Scratch Labs, Cliff Bar, Morton, Noon, along with protein powders. There is so much available on the site, so check it out. Go to thefeed.com and use FORWARD15 for 15% off. And the big thank you to The Feed for sponsoring the Female Athlete Podcast Network, Keeping Her Forward, which includes Strides Forward, in keeping track podcasts, as well as hear her sports. Now I'll let Giselle introduce her guest, long jumper and founder of the Sports Equity Lab, Dr. Yetza Tuakali. Find the Sports Equity Lab at sportsequitylab.com and on social at Sports Equity Lab. Welcome to the Madam Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Giselle Arney. I'm a sports medicine physician with a passion for teaching and a mission to support other women with careers in this space. On this show, you'll hear the stories from amazing women in their field of sport and athletics. They'll share their journeys, triumphs, and hardships in order to help and inspire you in your own career and life. Thanks for joining us. Let's do this. On today's episode, I'm talking to physiatrist and founder of Sports Equity Lab, Dr. Yetza Tuakli Wosunu. Yetza is a sports physiatrist and assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and an adjunct associate professor at Yale School of Public Health. She's the founding director of the Sports Equity Lab, which focuses on dismantling inequalities in sport while amplifying sports role as an agent for positive change. We talk about how learning to direct your focus to multiple pursuits can add meaning to your work. Applying skills learned through sports, like how to pivot and adapt to everyday life, and Yetza's advice to cherish and prioritize unstructured time as a way to create a sustainable, meaningful life. Hi, Yetza. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I can't wait. Hello. Yes, I can't wait as well. Oh, this like is started. We started last week. <laughs> yes. This is fantastic. Okay. You have 
literally done all of the things and I'm going to attempt to work my way through them, but truly you've done so much. But I always start at the beginning with educational journey. And I'm curious for you because so you um, went to Yale for undergrad and you got a bachelor's in African studies and then you went on to med school at Harvard. And so I was just wondering what your initial career thoughts were. Did you always have med school in mind? Did it kind of come to fruition later? Like what happened there? I love this question. I didn't expect that one. So I'll take it all the way back. So I was born in London um, to my amazing mother, who I'm, I'm realizing is one of the smartest people literally on the planet. Um, she's from Nigeria. And then dad is from Ghana. Uh, and then from London, we moved to Boston because mom literally asked people, where's Harvard? And they said, it's in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> she said, OK, great. That's where we're moving. So oh we my moved gosh, there. I love this. I know. We moved there, me, my twin sister, my mom, and our stepdad with our adorable British accents when we were three, um, like asking for a, a bottle <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> bottle, which is what I, is how I say it now. Um, and my mom raised us, um, uh, yeah, you know, in, in the Boston area. And mom's a pediatrician, dad's a, a surgeon. So we kind of had medicine in our um, in our home, kind of like in our in our upbringing and our background. It sort of seemed like a great opportunity to um, serve, you know, the community, but at the same time stay really engaged intellectually. Mom really has a lot of fun as a physician. Um, and so when we were in middle or high school, I can't remember which one it was. Um, we were taking piano and violin and all these great great, you know, Boston um, <laughs> making availing ourselves of all the opportunities in Boston. And mom would uh, drive us by Harvard Medical School and say, well, yes, uh, you know, if you become a physician, um, if you, you know, abandon your dreams of being a veterinarian, uh, that's the medical school you'll be going to. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm definitely going to be a veterinarian, um, you know, going to stay true to my original roots. You know, every single time I saw, a, 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 you know, a train of ants crossing the sidewalk, I would make everybody stop so we could let them pass and then bring all the injured animals in the community into the house to rehabilitate them over like months. Um, and it, it was really not sanitary or safe, but <laughs> it was still, that was my passion, rehabilitation and you know, the, the lesser of, of, um, of the beings on earth. Cause they, you know, they didn't have anyone to defend them. Um, so, so yeah, I think Harvard medical school was sort of planned. <laughs> At least the seed was planted very early. Um, but um, when we got to Yale, I decided to do African studies because I adore um, the cultural traditions and ways of knowing and ways of being from home. So the idea of a village raising a child or polyrhythms in music and how that polyrhythmic philosophy shows up even in the textiles and in the art and the social structure. I just I really much very much gravitated to that. Um, and wanted to study it a little bit more deeply. And so that's why I chose African studies, just because it's a deep interest um, of mine. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of listened to my mom and went to medical school in Boston after that. <laughs> I love it. All those secret prompts that she had been like, it wasn't what can you buy? For, de for like a couple decades was like, Ugh. We would roll by like 10 miles an hour. <laughs> Like, look, like, isn't it pretty? Don't you like it? Look at that marble. <laughs> oh my God, it's so nice. It has a Harvard met etched into the marble. Beautiful, no? I'd be like, it's oh goodness. Okay, that's hysterical. <laughs> I love her long game sneak attack on you. And it yeah. works. 
and it worked and <laughs> you've done really amazing things with it. And what's kind of hysterical when you said that with the vet, I had no idea about that, but you still went into rehabilitation, but this time for humans. Oh my gosh. I can't believe this is so funny. This is actually, okay. I haven't actually put those things together. Can you imagine after all these years, 42 years yeah. of not putting those together, but yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's actually, there's a lot to be said for that, right? So when I was little, I used to really, really, I mean, I'm one of those highly sensitive people, I guess. I just, my heart would break if there was, you know, like a deer on the side of the road. Or um, we had a bird named Randy who I, I tried to rehabilitate, didn't work too well because he was, you know, a wild bird. Um, yeah. <laughs> trying to make him <laughs> his broken wing, you know, put it on a popsicle stick and I put him in my den and he would fly around frantically on breaking most most of the things oh, in the, okay. in the den. Yeah, that didn't work too well. But I really had a bleeding heart for that entire um, that entire narrative, like injury um, and the idea that, well, if there's something that is injured and has sort of been rendered in need of restoration, um, I really want to assist in that process, um, both so that thing can, you know, optimize its function, but then also just because I just imagine it's it's got to be kind of sad and tough and lonely to lose that lose that functionality. So I really had a huge sort of bleeding heart for that, that narrative. And I guess it did kind of translate into what I'm doing now in physical medicine rehabilitation. That's so interesting. I, you know, I, you also, so you didn't go right there because you took time to get a master's in public health. And I'm curious for you too, right? Because in medicine, there's a billion different things you can do with it. We often think of like one or two, but truly there's a million things you can do. Mm -hmm. And you sort of early on were interested, or I don't know if you're interested, but you got into this research path, this career scientist. I mean, you had a Fulbright scholar, you were an NIH scientist, um, and like you've done all of this. Was was that early on in med school that the research and that curiosity that you have of sort of figuring things out that played into you kind of pursuing this research path? How did that come about? That's a really good question. Um, I think it was, I wish it was linear and and well planned out, but I don't think it was. I think at the, at the bottom of it all, I've always just had a really strong curiosity just in general. I'm just really curious as to how things work. Um, I used to, you know, when I was four or five, take the phone apart and try to put it back together unsuccessfully. Um, but I had a lot of fun doing that. <laughs> um, or, you know, in track and field, when I got into it, I was like, you know, fascinated by the long jump and the hurdles um, because of the technical aspects of them. Like, how can you opt create optimal angles to fly, basically, in the long jump or going over hurdles? Hmm, how many steps in between each hurdle to optimize the race pattern? Like, I was really interested in how things actually work. So mechanism has always been of of interest. I wish I had some grand plan when I got to medical school um, to enter research, but I didn't. I really just followed the most interesting questions that came up year after year. So my first formal foray into research was basic science. Um, between my third and fourth year of med school, I did um, the Stanley Sarnoff Cardiovascular Research Fellowship. Um, I went out to Dallas, Texas. Uh, 10-gallon hats and all, um, and I worked in Helen Hobbs and Jonathan Cohen's lab. Um, they characterize loss and gain-of-function mutations in genes that work on the cholesterol pathway, and they were mentored by Brown and Goldstein, who discovered the statins. 
So Brown and Goldstein are down the hall with their literal 10 gallon hats and deep Texan accents. And everything was like mustard yellow and brown. Just very like Dallas sort of 70s, Texas. <laughs> um, but amazingly, that's like literally where the statins came from. <laughs> Um, and then Helen Hobbs, who is a, really a lifelong mentor of mine, she's a clinical endocrinologist who got into cholesterol pathways due to her clinical interests. She's just a larger-than-life figure and a wonderful mentor who always said, you need to be able to tell a compelling, meaningful story that has impact on people's lives and makes them better. Like, that's literally what science is. Um, to ask some questions that truly matter to people's health and well-being dig into it like you would approach training for the olympics uh, in terms of your industriousness and work ethic but at the end of the day communicate it in a way that people can follow grabs them gives them an opportunity to understand what it is that you're doing why it's important so she was really my i would say my sort of foundational research mentor because it was my first time taking a full year just to do basic science and i, I started at basic science i wanted to really kind of start at the beginning and understand the way scientists think every day for, you know, 365 days. Um, and so that was probably, that was one of my favorite years, great, great experiences. We ended up with an incredible publication uh, in Nature Genetics um, out of that year. Um, and I think that set me up for just asking, seeking out important questions that have impact and then taking time to create a method that's going to get you to the answer in a way that means something to other people. Um, that's, I think, the most important thing, rather than just do copycat experiments or um, easy experiments or um, uh, something that someone tells you that you should do, et cetera, if, if, if that makes sense, Giselle. Oh, my gosh, it makes so much sense. I love that philosophy and to have learned that first in your research career. Mm -hmm. to go, you know, and like you said, it's not just about an interesting question. It's also a meaningful question, something that mm -hmm. will actually have an impact and make a difference and help. And, mm -hmm. you know, I know we might be jumping around all over the place, but that's cool. It's fun. Um, you, you started your own lab, the sports equity lab, and mm -hmm. this sort of research is so impactful. It's so meaningful. It's so important. And it's not to say that basic science research itself is not important or impactful. Um, but when you're, when you're centering that meaning, the meaningfulness, then mm -hmm. just how much more incredible is that work going to be? And, you know, I talk about this in other aspects of the podcast and of my course, but when you have a goal that matters to you, <laughs> that you truly mm -hmm. find meaningful, that mm -hmm. is your goal that you're motivated by. It's intrinsically motivating. You're going to do so much. You're going to work so much harder at it. You're mm -hmm. going to have an easier time getting after it, even when it's not easy. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's going to be mentally more engaging and easy to get after it than when somebody else just says, oh, just research this. Oh, mm -hmm. just look up this. So I mm -hmm. love this. I love this. Yeah. And just to add to that, Giselle, it's, it's, it's you know, we're, none of us is without context, right? I, I, I started uh, the, the, my conversation about studying African studies because I'm really, obviously, I grew up with my mom um, blaring Moroccan music on Sundays and Fela Kuti Monday through um, Friday. That's a Nigerian artist. Um, and, you know, every single get together was multicultural, pluricultural, <laughs> pluri like very, very, very um, worldly, global upbringing. And so 
yeah, it's important to do research that matters to you. But you yourself are always part of a community of some kind, right? So it's also important to think, who is it that I rep which community do I represent? Which community am I a part of? And how is this beneficial to the, my community? In my community of athletes, my community of women, my community of West African women, my community, you know, whatever it is, whichever community, you know, is of, of most meaning to you. Maybe that's just your local community, your city, your school, your class, your class of residence, whatever it is. None, no individual is devoid of context. Um, and I think in a science, obviously we're biomedical scientists. Um, we have huge platforms and huge responsibilities, but also privileges to speak for and do work on behalf of communities that we represent. And I think that's why the work um, in sports is so meaningful because um, you know many, many things. But I think if you are asking, for example, my mom or um, my closest family, my auntie Allison, my auntie Simi, ask them like, what is Yetza at the end of the day? They would say she's just a jock. <laughs> like she's <laughs> this like Tasmanian devil little kid sprinting around, running into things and laughing, you know, um, really excited about just moving and being like kinetic. Um, and so athletes to me are their family, their home. And so being able to do meaningful work on behalf of the community that I'm part of, yeah, that's intrinsically motivating and um, in a sustainable way, you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And this, you talk about this of, of your context as an athlete, because you competed at an elite level. You represented Ghana national team. You have also, you know, aside from the work at Sports Equity Lab, which that's not really an aside, that's a huge thing that you've done, but you've also been part of International Paralympic Committee. You're their inaugural welfare officer and member of medical committee. You have done so much work in that realm as well of athletes with disabilities. How how was that experience for you as an athlete? Like, what is your context as an athlete growing up and competing and competing at this elite level? <laughs> I love this question. Again, Giselle, I haven't thought about, thank you for telling me not to prepare. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. It's great. You just see what happens. Yeah, it's so nice to go down memory lane like that. Um, my context as an athlete. Mm -hmm. Well, First, I'll say my relationship to sport has changed over time. That's for sure. So when we were younger, we sort of, you know, were back in the day, I think I'm, maybe you can relate to this. I think there was a sort of fallacy that you kind of had to choose sports or school. There's a sort of I, I, I'm not sure if you can if you can relate to that or if your listeners can. But there was the idea that, OK, you know, this one is the jock me and my twin sister is the nerd. Or, you know, and then a couple of years will go by and I would do better in school. She would do better on the track. Well, now this one is the jock and that one is the, like, it's just, you know, you sort of had this one dimensional identity that was made available to you. So I think I falsely kind of felt that I had to choose through high school, through college, um, which one I wanted to spend more time in or on. And um, what I didn't realize and what I do realize really clearly now is how and the life, the lessons that you learn in those in those sports environments, to me, are the most valuable, period. And the content that we learn in some of the higher upper echelon classrooms of the world that many of your listeners are a part of, anyone in biomedical science is a part of and we're privileged to be part of, can be used in the service of those sports spaces where other persons who may not have our intellectual um, um, uh, bandwidth uh, can necessarily access. So the, the two complement each other. 
uh, and they, they they really need to be put in conversation with each other as opposed to in competition with each other. So that's been my evolution over time. And that's only because I'm so stubborn that I just continue to compete <laughs> forever. Like I trained <laughs> through college and I felt like, you know, I'm doing all these, tra- these track and field meets and they're great. However, I'm also going to, you know, African dance team practice and step team practice probably two, three, four days a week as well. And I'm hardly getting any sleep. I wonder if I'm really optimized as a performer. So that was my constant sort of conversation with myself through Yale. Graduated, like, I wonder if I could have jumped further if I were better rested or didn't also step and stomp on my legs for the past three hours in preparation for the step team, you know, performance. (laughs) Um, And so I thought, well, maybe I'll continue to train in college if there's not, I mean, in medical school, if there's an opportunity, get to Boston um, oh, wait, actually, before that, I was doing my Fulbright. Even in, in my Fulbright in Nigeria, I joined the University of Ibano track team in Nigeria just to keep my fitness up um, when I was doing my Fulbright. And then I got to um, medical school in Boston, and I thought, okay, well, if I can, if I find an opportunity to continue to train, I will. Lo and behold, two, no, three blocks away from our medical school, we have the Reggie Lewis Track and Field uh, Center, and there was a, a track team there, a track club. So I joined the track club there and I kept training and competing. And I noticed that I was getting better in medical school, jumping further, uh, getting closer to sort of national team qualification distances. So one of my friends just said, you should really try to make a national team because, you know, you're jumping further and further every year. And it's, you know, it's not subtle. We're we're measuring the distances. This is objective. And so then I had it in my mind, okay, maybe I'll try to be an elite competitor, even at, you know, this late stage in the game. So um, finally, 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 <laughs> end of medical school, I qualified for the Ghanaian national team as one of the long jumpers training um, with their squad over the next couple of years. So I did that through um, my fellowship, um, which is, of course, internship, residency, and then fellowship. And um, yeah, I got to compete internationally with that squad. And it was the greatest gift um, such an incredible group of people, all from every corner of the world. You know, Ghanaian, um, Ghanaian national team, most of our competitors, I would say, are outside of Ghana, unlike other national squads. So there's a little bit of a, a nuance there in our team structure. Um, but of course, everybody is Ghanaian, somewhere in the Netherlands, somewhere in Canada, France, um, America, of course. And we come together for, you know, all Africa games or the national champs, um, Commonwealth games, events like that. That's incredible. I I love this story as an athlete competing at this elite level that it was not necessarily you 100 hours a day only doing this Mm-mm. from a young age, peak early, and then you're done, right? Like that it it grew and built with you and it grew with your curiosity and your interest and I think that's such a more sustainable method for prolonging your athletic career. Yeah, I think you should always have a healthy relationship with sport. I think healthy relationships, generally speaking, are a good thing. Healthy and balanced. Yes. <laughs> Whether it's with oh your spouse or your friends or your mentors or mentees or, or sports. Yes. <laughs> or yourself. Um, and I think, yeah, so many, you know, when we were younger, we used to get so confused. We we genuinely thought you had to have this sort of, you know, maniacal, um, zero-sum, intense sort of relationship that was um, exclusive to mm-hmm. your 
support in your training environment that which you know doesn't allow for full humanity doesn't allow for you for you to be a full person a kid uh, curious about other things um yeah. and so yeah there's there's anything that's imbalanced i think is not very not very healthy so yeah it did slowly evolve over time and i stayed super curious about what else was possible um when i was in doing my master's in public health, this is when I kind of came a little bit more serious about training after medical school. I met uh, a really good friend of mine, Tiambe Hurd. She's the American record holder in the women's triple jump. Uh, she just so happened to be in Maryland. I was in Maryland. And one of my coaches just said, you know, Tiambe Hurd is about 45 minutes away. Um, and if she knows anything, she knows for sure how to create elite horizontal jump performances. Um, she's done it. <laughs> <laughs> she's current American record holder. Uh, she's an Olympian. She's not much, you know, taller than you. She's she was about she's about three inches taller than me. Um, and uh, she's a lovely person. You should reach out to her and see if she can be your training partner, or she would have you as a training partner. So I did, and that I have to tell you, Giselle, that first session we had with her, it was a weight session. I just went there, just you know, my little gangly self. I was, mm. I've always been a little skinny. Um, underweight for for an elite jumper, to be honest. And I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I trained through college. You know, I'm, I've I've qualified for a national squad. I know how to lift weights. I know how to clean squat. I know how to snatch, etc. This lady to put me through this session. After 20 minutes, I was like, Wait, are you sure I need to lift this much? <laughs> she just started laughing. She's like, What? She's like, What are your goals? And I was like, well, I mean, I want, you know, I want to be on my national team. I want to break the national record. I want to be an Olympian if I can one day. That would be, that would be great. And she was like, well, this is, these are the ingredients that are required to achieve this outcome. You have to assess your outcome. Your, sorry, your strategies by your outcome. You haven't achieved any of those goals yet. So your strategy is, 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 is incorrect. It's not, it's not working. It's not idolize, idolize or optimize for your outcome. And I was like, I guess you're right. <laughs> I will admit that you have achieved the outcomes that I'm discussing. Um, yeah, she completely almost turned my entire world around, like flipped the apple cart and said, nope, go back to the drawing board. None of this is right. So I just learned almost from the beginning how to lift, what to lift, when to lift, how to eat and supplement my track workouts with that lifting, tra- with that lifting program. My body totally changed in about three months. All my performances got better after about 12. It took a while. You know, I got definitely got worse before I got better. But no, she just said, this is unacceptable. And, and, and if you if you're out, if your goal is to remain at this level, by all means, continue to do what you're doing where you're in live where you're comfortable. Continue yes. to lift, you know, 1.5 times your body weight, 1.8 times your body weight instead of three. You know? Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> appreciate it. So she became a good friend, and that just totally shifted the the, the approach I took to training. But that I think you have to have that that ability, right? The ability to pivot, um, yeah, and adapt, and just take that humble stance. Like, nope, definitely can't be right because I haven't achieved what I want to. So how can I learn from others and and change if I need to? There is just so much to take away from this because starting off with that goal in mind. And what is your mission? What is your vision? What are you trying to get after? And mm. then back yourself up from there and go, okay, well, what are the steps that are going to get me there? Like truly thinking, like you said, flip that apple cart. Like what is it that your goal is? And now back your way in, like back your way into that. 
and figure that out and be willing to go, okay, yeah, I've been working really hard. Is it going to make a difference? And this is just like sidestepping into career stuff. A lot of times we just buckle down and work harder, right? Like we just, we just got to grind it out. Like, okay, we'll just do this same thing we've been doing and just do it more or do it harder. And Mm -hmm. that is not always that's just going to keep giving you that same result that you have had, but maybe like a little burned out. And mm-hmm. so going, maybe do I need an entire different plan or a different approach and be open to something new? Mm-hmm. Like that's incredible. Yeah. You know, that expression always be closing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, like always be learning. Right. So like, yes. I think, um, so I, yeah, er, we, we are, we're all very talented, right? We know that people we've passed many a test, um, but there's so much we can learn wisdom, like deep wisdom um, from people around us, especially when their outcomes are similar to those that we want. So I think um, being able to, you know, not have not have like almost this false humility, like, you know, out of obligation, I'm going to go sit with this person and try to learn from them and poach ideas and uh, appropriate them into my system. No, it's like maybe I need to hear that the system needs to be re- revamped um, and restructured. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a different level of humility there, but there's also a different level of hunger there. Like mm-hmm. I really wanted to make it to my to my national squad. Like I was like, I'm not playing around on this one. So those two things in combination, I think, um, are a pretty good strategy. Yes. Okay. I wanted to ask, because I'm curious, how did you become involved with the International Paralympic Committee and mm-hmm. start doing work there? Because I know you've also, within PMNR, working with athletes with disabilities is um, a track that a lot of folks go into within sports medicine. And mm-hmm. well, not a lot, probably we could use more, <laughs> but um, you've also chaired a task force on physical activity for persons with disabilities within the International Society for Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine. Mm-hmm. And so I know you've done a lot of work in this area. And I was wondering kind of how did that come about and how did you uh, become involved with Paralympics? Yeah, it's a good question. It started with a personal connection. Um, so in 2011, I um, was called up to compete at the All Africa Games in Mozambique, in Maputo, Mozambique. And I was so excited, my first international competition. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but the All Africa Games is kind of like the Commonwealth Games in that it's totally inclusive. So you have athletes with and without disabilities in the same games village, um, training and competing at the same event. So unlike, you know, doing the Olympic Games, you've got the Olympics that occur. And then a couple of weeks later, the Paralympics take place. So that's actually not inclusive. They're two separate carnivals. Whereas the All-Africa Games, 100% inclusive. I didn't know that. So I showed up and all I knew is that, you know, I would like to get a medal. I'd like to jump a little further than I, than I have been doing. Um, but more importantly, I want to take in this experience of being here with my little, you know, my athlete credentials. I was so proud. <laughs> little did I know that Maputo was just like one of the most, um, as All-Africa Games go, it was one of the least well-funded. So <laughs> you're like fighting for roles in the cafeteria. They'd be like, you can only have one. <laughs> Like, what? And all, my teammates were like, when we were in Nigeria a couple of years ago, we had like a spread. It was like huge buffets. <laughs> anyway, so we were, we didn't, I didn't realize it was like the poor man's version of, <laughs> of an international sports carnival. But I was excited. <laughs> so um, we were in, uh, in the line, in the cafeteria line, waiting for our ration roll. 
And um, my friend Seiru, he's a beach volleyball player for Ghana, just said, hey, uh, have you met Raphael? I said, no, who's that? And he asked me to turn around. I looked up, I looked around, didn't see anybody. And he said, look down, he's sitting down. I said, oh, I looked down, I looked, it was Raphael. He was sitting in his chair. So Raphael is the only Ghanaian who is qualified for five, either Olympic or Paralympic games successively. So that's a 25-year stretch. Jeez. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not a short period of time. So Raphael is our most successful athlete, period. And, and um, sorry, a 20-year stretch. Let me not act like I don't know how to do math. But because, <laughs> but because these games were delayed, it ends up being about 21. Um, and so he's our most successful athlete, but I never heard of him. So over the course of um, those games, I just got to know him really well as a friend. We were there for about 12 days or so. And I noticed that the, the terms on which he was present representing Ghana were drastically different from the terms on which I was there representing Ghana. So able-bodied athletes, we were given apartment apartments to ourselves. So we had in the Games Village, we had um, these apartment blocks for the different um, different countries. Ghana had a little block, you know, um, Angola had a little block, et cetera, et cetera. Our block was all horizontal jumpers, sprinters, and a few distance folks sprinkled in, but it was maybe one or two to an apartment. One evening, Raphael asked me to come visit his block, and I went to his apartment, and there were 13 para-athletes on mattresses on the ground, yep, adjoining, adjoined together loosely and totally haphazardly, all of their racing chairs, with which they were winning gold and silver medals yeah. for Ghana were stacked in the kitchen like surplus storage and they had no access to the kitchen they couldn't use it there was i i was mortified i mean the phrase three-fifths a human really came to mind like immediately mm -hmm. so i'm looking at this very stark and clear atrocity a total dehumanization of elite competitors with whom i share a jersey at the same games yeah. And I was like, okay, so yeah, I was curious about this whole inequity thing. <laughs> I was showed up related to disability stigma and the intersectionality of being West African, a person with a disability, an elite athlete who is depending on that medal and that per diem to support one's family when one gets home. Mm -hmm. I just thought, no, this is too much. So that personal connection really prompted my interest in actively trying to fill in those gaps, but more importantly, bringing those stories to light because no one's going to speak for that group. If yeah. someone like you or me or, you know, persons who are in, have any kind of platform to say, you know, hey, there's some science here or, hey, there's some, there's some, um, there are a few, you know, policies to be changed here, whatever it is, there's, those stories are going to, are going to literally just go silent and untold if they're not actively brought to the forefront. So, it, it, also, it just started with a personal connection. And so when I got back from Mozambique, um, by the way, while Raphael won multiple gold medals, while Ajira, one of my good friends, Mohammed, won, I think, like eight gold medals. <laughs> I know, everything from the 100 meters to the marathon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> I got sixth place, and I was so excited. <laughs> In one event, the long jump. Um, when I got back, I just started to really in intensively investigate how I could get engaged in the medical committee. Mm -hmm. um, one of my colleagues, Wayne German, actually, 
happened to mention to me that there was an opening in the IPC Medical Committee. And so I went through my National Paralympic Committee and I, you know, very efficiently, again, with that same hunger, applied. Um, and then they, they accepted me onto the Medical Committee. But it was all it started with a personal connection. I just I couldn't stand to see my teammates in that condition. I just thought this this if there's if there's nothing else we can do in sport, but try to make it truly safe and fair and equitable for the competitors in sport, <laughs> then you know we might as well try, we might as well do that because that's the basic. That's the that's the that's literally step one. Yeah. Oh my God. Is this was this one of the drivers behind starting the sports equity lab? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a hundred percent. I could just see, yeah, I could just see that there's a, there was a need for, um, yeah, for athletes vulnerabilities to be made more, more public, but also taken seriously as its own, as, as its own science. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it could be positively impacted. Yeah. And I love it. This has taken your personal experience as an athlete, your experience seeing this firsthand among your teammates and seeing what happens. But you're also your experience as a physician, as a physiatrist, as someone who has this interest in the rehabilitation and taking care of a whole athlete, right? And a whole person and helping them perform at their best. It's like it it's like added all of these things that you have done or experienced or learned along the way and has like wrapped it up into this beautiful thing that is doing this incredible work to help dismantle inequities in sport. So mm-hmm. talk to me about the sports equity lab. Like what do you do there and how I'm also curious because for folks who don't know, right, she's running her own lab, but you also are working as a physician. <laughs> like you <laughs> ran this through COVID, right? Like you switched jobs through this. Like how are you keeping this up and supporting it and just doing all the things? Cause like you're still publishing, you're like, you're just doing incredible things. How does this all happen? What are the secrets? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does it all happen? Let's see. Uh, well, it starts with the personal connection, right? That's the most important, I think. Um, I think, uh, let's see, let's see. What do we do? So obviously the, the mandate is to study healthy and unhealthy relationships in sport, but also try to dismantle inequities, like you mentioned. And inequities are, it's kind of an abstract concept, but really anything that is, that leads to a a fixed power imbalance um, between a group that is disadvantaged and another group that is advantaged. So um, inequity can exist along lines of gender. Um, It can exist along lines of ability versus disability, personal uh, capacity. Um, it can exist along lines of socioeconomic status. So anything that sort of there's like a little guy and there's a big guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, the little guy is who we care about uh, mm-hmm. and we're interested in fighting for, um, learning more about their experience so that um, they can no longer be disadvantaged by structural imbalances. So that's the goal. Dismantle some of the inequities in sports. Um, what we do is try to take a truly interdisciplinary approach to various research projects and questions. So. On the research side, I like to lean into qualitative methodology quite a bit to ask questions like, what is the experience of interpersonal violence or abuse or disability stigma for athletes who have disabilities who live in a context like West Africa, right? That's the, that's the, how it all started. So we might do like a qualitative study interviewing athletes from Ghana as a starting point. We recently added India and Brazil. 
and we'll ask them just out of, you know, in your own words, at your own pace, what is your experience of harmful behaviors in sport? One, two, three, go. Um, we have a qualitative expert who works with us, Sakina Sudaratana. We're really blessed to have her on our squad. And she does a beautiful job of quantifying qualitative data, <laughs> which is basically very, very long transcripts. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we put that in, in, in scientific packaging and put it out into the world, um, hopefully adding new insights that, again, may not have been made present had we not gone looking for them. So that's one method that we try to use qualitative methodology to answer questions that mean something to athletes. Another uh, thing that we do is uh, lean into the quantitative work. So global balance and global representation and global perspective is really important to me. Um, and so I try to, if we're going to do a survey, like the Athletes' Rights Survey, for example, we try to poll athletes broadly. So that survey, we ask the question, do athletes know and truly have confidence in their human rights in the sports context? So that is while you're training and competing, right? While you're going to practice, while you're lifting your weights, while you're um, complaining about the next repeat mile you have to do with your teammates, while you are doing your 500th setup for you know the day, do you truly feel like, you know what, I have freedom of speech right now? Or do you really feel like if my rights were violated, I could freely seek redress without fear of consequence? You know what I mean? Like, do those things actually mean something to you in sport? Um, yeah. We suspected that the answer was probably no, because when we thought back on our experience as athletes, and so we did that survey. Uh, we, I think we had 70 countries um, involved in that survey. And the way that happened is, again, great network of friends and colleagues who care about the work. We just brought together a research team and we all polled our networks and that successfully got to that many athletes in that many countries. So that's like a quantitative right, method that we're using to ask a question that we think matters to athletes and matters to sports. Um, and then, of course, there's mixed methods <laughs> where you can take a qualitative and a quantitative approach in the same study and ask a question that you think is important to um, to the topic of inequity in sport. So that's kind of what we do. Who we are um, is this amazing group of inter kind of generational and interdisciplinary, um, mostly ex-athletes who now do other things like medicine or law or public health or human rights. So I have um, faculty who have just organically kind of joined the group really over the past couple of years um, in Australia, human rights, um, human rights uh, department in New Haven. I started everything at Yale. So a lot of my colleagues are in New Haven in the public health faculty or in orthopedics. Uh, I got a, a surgeon who works with us. And then at University of Bath, uh, we have a qualitative expert working with us there. So it really is a very organic, interdisciplinary, multi-generational group that came together just solely based on interest. Um, we sort of started working with four students at Yale because they're students. They just know how to work social media and started to put the word out, put the word out more and more. We recruited more students. Um, and then ultimately, my colleagues and friends from around various conferences and and also the sports community started to gravitate towards the group. And now we just have this like organic, decentralized <laughs> uh, squad that does really interesting work because we think it's important. Like that's genuinely it. It's really an interesting like group of people that 
that is global, which is your interest, that is interdisciplinary, which is your interest, that has that athlete context, which is your interest. It's Mm -hmm. like it's organic, but it's also it feels like meant to be (laughs) feels like that all came together beautifully to do this work. Can I say the one thing that I that I will say, though, the thing is everybody is and every single person at the end of the day in the group is an athlete and has huge empathy for the athlete experience. I think that really matters. Yeah. I think it matters because you get all these insights that are really obvious um, to those who have walked the walk um, because you've, you've done it. You can look back on your training days and say, no, that policy wouldn't really work, you know, for me in my gym in Maryland with the with Tiambe, for example. Right. I can think about it. I can put myself in the shoes of somebody training in the environment and say it would or wouldn't work for an athlete in track and field. Um, we have a football player. He's a, a current college football player at the school that will remain unnamed because we're at Yale. He's at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you did both. You crossed the lines. No, where you did your college and wait. No, 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 no. College is where you really have your your, your loyalties. So Yale football. Okay, med school day. doesn't count. Man, no. <laughs> all day Yale Bulldogs. So, but um, but so yeah, he's he's a, a Harvard football player. But his insights are so interesting because. Yeah, have hundreds of people on their team. And that I, that sort of group think, that sort of, you know, next man up mentality, it's really alive and well. Hyper masculine, some toxic masculinity comes into play. So his insights are so, so fascinating and add so much value to our conversations and to our studies. And then you have our silver medalist um, Olympic swimmer, Allison. She currently works for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. Silver medalist for the U.S. in swimming, individual sport, but it's a water sport, right? So I have no idea what, what it is to turn, like, put on a bathing suit every single day for practice. Like, that just sounds strange. Yeah, it was, so she brings insights from swimming. And then now she also works in anti-doping. She's got great insight from there. So it's like you have all these perspectives. And to me, that is, it's hugely it's invaluable i can't even put a you literally can't put an amount on that it's invaluable but it's also necessary because that diversity of perspective not of personal background or of ethnicity but of perspective is where really unique and um and piercing ideas and insights come from and that's what that's been the real um i don't know it's just been the real joy of the group every conversation is some out of the box, left field comment from some perspective and, and experience that none of us really know <laughs> have anything to do with. We're just like, what? What college football guy? Or you know, what prof- one of our athletes is a he's a um, he was a former professional soccer player for a U.S. team, and uh, that's a different world altogether. So yeah, it's the diversity of perspectives that makes it so rich and and wonderful. That's awesome. And how do you keep up with it? Because it, I mean, it's kind of like your side gig or it's, I mean, I, you know, like, how do you manage that while also working as a physician clinically? Um, yeah, good question, Giselle. Well, (laughs) that's part, that's part of why I moved. I realized that I couldn't work as a clinician four or five days a week and give the appropriate attention and respect to this group. So I changed my job structurally such that I am able to see patients two to three days per week as opposed to five. And then I have dedicated research 
um, and writing time and thinking time um, for some of the projects that we're advancing in um, in sports related topics. So that structural change was really re required for me. I noticed, I know what you're saying. I noticed, I noticed that I was getting really burnt out and tired, energized, yeah. but exhausted. Right, right. I I love that. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle to go, wait, I could do this less than full time. Like, <laughs> I don't have to do this five days a week. Like, yeah. no, you don't have to, right? But it's where you're ingrained to go, this is what it means to be a physician, like five right. days a week or yeah. like, you know, whatever. So I love that you did that and realized that and, and created a structure for you that allows you to keep your clinical practice and to also give the time dedicated to this incredible sports equity lab that you've built. So I just think that's super incredible. And I love that. So some of the questions that I ask everyone mm -hmm. are, what particular challenges have you faced in your career? What things have been difficult for you that you've had to overcome or that you still struggle with today? Yeah. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week, Giselle, um, about showing up in this um, really power-driven um, kind of top-down hierarchical system and resisting the temptation to just regress to that way of doing things, right? Um, and I think that's, it's an ongoing struggle. Like it's an ongoing struggle to show up as myself, um, and to really see value and my perspective, see value even in the way that I interact with other people. So I think that in academic medical, um, settings, especially here in the States, um, I'm not sure if it's the same in the rest of North America, but I know for sure in the States, it's pretty competitive. And I think there's a very specific persona that gets rewarded um, and it's really easy to start to think that there's there's more value to kind of that entering a room and entering um, a team with a you know bravado for lack of a better um, better word um, and interacting with people in a way that shows that you really are adherent to power that power imbalances basically and so I think understanding that no, there's other ways that you could do things. You can show up in a as more yourself in a way that's just more collaborative, maybe a little bit less um, um, less imposing and still succeed and it's still and it still has value. So I think resisting the urge to just regress to that way of doing things has been a struggle. Um, but what's given me a lot of hope and and, and sort of encouragement, is seeing mentors around me do that and succeed, or even peer mentors around me do that and succeed. And so it gives me an opportunity to say, like, look, it's possible. It's just um, that the entire system is not necessarily rigged in a way that it's celebrated. You just have to know that you know that you know that you're doing it is okay. Yes. This we had we had such a good talk. That could have been an entire other podcast episode about this. Um, I know. <laughs> But it is, it is so, it's such a tricky thing, right? When the field of, in, in our case, medicine, right, is, was designed in the United States, again, like what we can get a little uh, more granular about this, but it was a white male field. It was a patriarchal, like white patriarchal society situation. It was not set up to include others. It was set up very hi hierarchical, mm -hmm. very like the person with the most confidence and the most bravado and not 
actually the most confidence, but looks like the most cockiness, maybe, <laughs> you know, like that outward expression, um, like they're who succeed, but that's, but that's not who necessarily provides the best care or has the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other different ways to show up and to be an amazing physician and to have incredible value and to really contribute. And it's hard when the entire system is set up in such a way to really go, do I fit here? Like, mm-hmm. how do I fit here? And how can I show up as myself and not be overtaken by this other way of being? Mm-hmm. And and it, I mean, I just feel you. I just, th- this is a huge thing. And I think it's even incredible to be able to recognize that you're seeing that and that that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And to go, I have to know, I have to internally know for myself. Mm-hmm. So that's beautiful. It's not easy. Yeah, I think the pandemic has helped with that. It's kind of given people a sense of renewal um, and it's given people an opportunity, I think, en masse in every sector, not just medicine, to start reevaluating, right, their yeah. priorities and how they want to be and how they want to show up to their jobs, to themselves, to their families, you know, all of it. And yeah. I think that we've, as a, as a whole, you know, a world, we've done a really good job of kind of um, stepping back and reevaluating, then reentering maybe a little bit differently. I think the other thing is, though, in academic medicine, I'm not going to lie, people get, you just, I'm sorry, fatigue is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. It's higher all the time. And I think that part of that is just because of the demands of the emotional labor of taking care of other humans. Mm-hmm. Um, you have true empathy and you show up for them um, with authenticity, then it, you, you really do, as an introvert, I definitely get drained Yes. <laughs> from doing that, but I want to do it the right way at the same time. So just balancing that and kind of literally having these micro conversations with myself all the time that no show up right I know you're tired but try to do it you know do your best do your best do your best that is uh, it's been a challenge but it's also been you know a good opportunity to rehearse that sort of almost like coaching myself during the day yeah Uh, despite fatigue yep I see you're fatigued I understand (laughs) you will get rest soon but in in this moment try to show up for this person in the way that you want yeah Okay, so what particular triumphs have you had in your career? What things are you really proud of? Triumphs? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm very proud of my lab. <laughs> I really am. They're a beautiful group of people. Um, you know, I, I think I'm. I think I'm the proud. I'm proud of the way I've been able to. Um, connect with my patients. I got a note from um, um, one of my patients just yesterday, actually. And my my 84 years living on this earth, um, I've never connected with or felt so cared for um, by a physician in any field. And um, I'm really, I'm really, really proud of that. Because I think the way we physicians, we we have that mandate, do no harm, but I think we kind of have more than that. Maybe it's only in physiatry, but in physical medicine, definitely in sports medicine, especially family sports, we also want people to like actually thrive. We're like, we do yeah. no harm. That's kind of the bare minimum standard. Right. From there, we're coming to rehabilitation, get you back to form and function. And then from there, we're like, what about optimal performance? Like we have this sort of three-tiered um, approach to care. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's really, really critical that you connect authentically um, with patients in a way that they know that they're seen, valued, and heard, and respected. 
Um, and that's when they that's when you notice all these great outcomes clinically and uh, athletically in their in their sports careers and their sports journeys. And it's, it really gives you a, lot, a good sense of pride that you've done meaningful work, you know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And I can very much envision you being really excellent at that in that sort of authentic enthusiasm for your patients. I mean, you've done that for me. You're like, yes, let me hype you up <laughs> at any time. You are ready to be that encouraging person. And you are like all about the thrive. You're like, yes, <laughs> let's go. We're going to be awesome. I can't wait. So I easily see that for you. And I just, okay. So yes, that. my last question, what advice do you have for other women on their career journeys? Wonderful question. So I would say, don't underestimate the value of unstructured time to make personal connection. I think a lot of times we get very sucked into um, our commitment to efficiency and the sort of the transactional nature of our interactions with people, whether they're mentors or peers or mentees. And every meeting has to have an agenda and a to-do list with outcomes um, that include tasks. And I think the funny thing about that model is that, the, you know, it's a, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to creativity and exploration of ideas during conversation. And then B, it can be a little bit like of a high pressure, um, a high pressure, uh, I guess, sentiment. So, you know, I I really do value and it may have to do with my upbringing, but I really do value just unstructured time um, sitting around talking with people, not necessarily about anything in particular and seeing where it goes. There are two um there are two examples that come to mind for me. First, um, one of my colleagues at the University of Bath uh, in England, she actually has built into her faculty um, responsibilities unstructured time to travel, to um, make connections with colleagues that she wants to explore future ideas with. So she'll take a week, half a week, two weeks, and her university will literally pay for her to go and hang out in New Haven, for example. She did that with me a couple of years ago at, at that Yale. That is incredible. There was no agenda. It it was literally about just organic sharing of ideas, exploring the city, getting to know one another, becoming better friends. That was it. And the best ideas emerged from that miniature sabbatical that her university sponsored. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so that's one example that come, that came to mind. I just thought I never heard of it. And I was like, well, what, what is the purpose of your coming? This is very sort of capitalistic um, uh, set of questions I initially threw <laughs> yeah. And she just threw back, there is none, and I don't have an answer to any of those. I'm coming to hang out with you. That's literally it. <laughs> That's so valuable. And so that was the first, the first moment where I just sort of took a pause and thought, this has like monetary value, according to some universities. <laughs> um, and that was the first. But then the second, a new mentee of mine, um, she reached out a couple of uh, weeks ago and she just said, dear Dr. Twockley, I'm so enthusiastic about some of the topics you spoke to us about in class. Can we get together for a tea? And I was like, sure. You know, what are you, what are we going to be discussing? What, what, do you have any projects? And do you have a master's thesis? Do you, do you, you know, what, what are we working on? And she's like, no, no, nothing to work on. I just, I want to spend time with you. <laughs> and I, I was, again, Annoyingly, I was actually kind of taken aback. So I'm just so used to having like outcome driven conversations. I mean, that's um, the advice that we're given, right? You reach out to somebody and you say, can I have tea with you to discuss this? Oh, I yeah. would love to like ask you questions about this specific topic. Mm -hmm. And um, 
but you're right. That might, I mean, that might get you started to build a connection with a complete rando Mm -hmm. um, to go, this is the focus of conversation so that we all know what we're getting into, but then to really build a connection, Mm -hmm. to really start to have ideas, to really build a relationship. I love this idea of you have to have that unstructured free time to see where that goes. Yeah, I think be open to that and see value in it. Um, and as I said, don't underestimate it, but also try to carve out time for it. Just, I think personal connection, uh, genuine, that is genuine, um, goes a hugely long way, uh, when it comes to fostering creativity, but also when it comes to just feeling fulfilled in our work relationships and in the colleagues that we exchange, um, exchange time and energy with. So yeah, that would be it. Don't underestimate that. This is genius advice. And I, I can say personally, I have been in positions where like I get into a new job and I am like head down, ready to go. I have tasks. I have goals. Like I know what we can get going and combine that with being an introvert. So I struggle <laughs> to be like, let me make close friends with all of these new people because you've just met like 100 new people at the job. And like that just doesn't fly. Like it just doesn't it just doesn't work. <laughs> right. And so it has been for me figuring out what are the steps I need to take to figure out that networking to figure out, sure, I'm an introvert and I need to give myself that like alone recover time, but this part is important Yeah. and building these relationships are important so that then we can go get work done that we're all on board with, that we're all excited about that could be even better because I've built these relationships first. Yes. First. And I think I'm an introvert too, Giselle. I think we're both very like social introverts. Yeah. Um, but I think the way to just the part B of that advice would be if you are an introvert, um, make sure that you just set boundaries around around that unstructured. Yeah. <laughs> you know, schedule it and make sure you, you know, you don't schedule in the times when you need to rest and recover and rejuvenate. Because I'm the same way. I cannot do that all day, every day. <laughs> yes. I can set aside half a day <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> yes. But know that boundary. Mm hmm. Set that in place. I love it. Place, just know your energy. But I think the second, the part C, um, in terms of, so obviously we talked about don't you don't underestimate the value of unstructured time for personal connection. B, if you're an introvert, there's a caveat. Um, and then I think um, the next part is, it is part of a sustainability plan because I think that meaningful relationships, like meaningful um, work, meaningful relationships, meaningful work, all, if those can be bundled, I do think it kind of um, is like a self-perpetuating engine. Um, that helps drive the work for a longer period of time. I think things fizzle when there's a minimal to no meaning in the connection to the work or to the person or to the people. Um, So it's almost as though that connection has value to the work also, if that makes sense. And and, and it supports sustainability. Yeah. No, I love this. This is excellent advice. Yetza, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story, for this incredible advice. I really, I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. You are so welcome. It's been an honor and a total pleasure. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Madam Athlete Podcast. Thank you to Dr. Yetza Tuakli-Wosanu for sharing her incredible story here. You can find out more about Yetza in the show notes at madamathlete.com. In talking with Yetza and some of my other recent guests, I keep coming back to the importance of figuring out your values because values that drive us in one area of our life are often the same ones that have the potential to drive other very different opportunities too and make amazing and meaningful things happen. 
Sometimes the first step to figuring out that transfer is putting pen to paper and giving those values a name. I've put together a free guide on defining your values that you can find at madamathlete.com slash values. So check it out. It's directly out of module one from the Women's Career Transformation Academy. As always, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>